is the church. Okay? Uh, we'll talk in general some about the church, and then we'll talk a little bit specifically about our church and our mission statement, what that means, <clears throat> what we intend by that. All right. Obviously, when you think about the church, you think people and not a building. Okay? You can see that in these quotes. The church had peace and was being built up. Well, that's certainly not a building. Those are the people, right? Um, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great many people. So church is a gathering of people. Uh, It always means the people of God. And so, as I say here, if we met in the parking lot, you could say the church met in the parking lot by the church building. Okay, that would make a distinction. I've seen signs on some before in front of some church buildings, it's, it'll say the meeting place of the so-and-so church to make the point, you know, that this isn't the church. It's the place where the church meets. So uh, the word ecclesia I have here, it's the assembly gathering together. We're the ones that God has called out to gather together. Now, once we get that straight, though, as an image, you can think of a building, Okay. As we, the people, constitute the church, he uses, uh, God uses in his word, the image of a building. First Peter 2, as you come to him, uh, uh, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Same thing in Ephesians 2, a dwelling place for God. 1 Corinthians 3 there, you're God's temple and God's spirit. So while the building is not the church, we are the building, right? We're the temple as the people of God. And so uh, it's, it's a glorious thing, an amazing thing, and uh, that we could be the dwelling place of God. And on page 73, I talk about the fact that we're not dead bricks. It says we're living stones, Right. Uh, So this whole building bristles with life. Each uh, stone shares new life in Christ. We share in the life of the Spirit who dwells in us. And when it says, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, that you are God's temple, it's the plural, y'all. Y'all are God's temple. You constitute God's temple, right? Um, That's the way we say it in Alabama. Um, We share a common life in Christ through His Spirit. And... This makes a point, though, that we're not disconnected bricks. You see a bunch of bricks in a field, you're not thinking, oh, somebody made these bricks to throw them in the field. You know, these were intended to be part of a building. And they're not really serving their purpose lying around in a field somewhere. That's not what they're for. So we need to see ourselves as living stones to be connected. That's the very point of being a living stone, is to be connected and to be built up into a wall. A, a building and you, the, the bricks give each other strength together they become something that they're not at all uh, by themselves so you're not intended to be a maverick in the Christian life to be off by yourself you're made for this glorious building that he's making okay and uh, wonderful wonderfully this building is a project that lasts to eternity this isn't a temporary building. It's not an aluminum building, okay? It's a cathedral, so to speak. And it's going to last forever. Uh, this is, you might say, the building project of God on earth is building this temple of his people that will be a glorious sign of his love forever. 
So, when you think of the church, think building. Also, secondly, page 73, think of the church, think family. Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, the word household of God is simply their word for family, okay? Same thing in 1 Timothy 3, uses that phrase, the household of God. So, the whole church around the world and throughout history is pictured as one household, okay? One household, Uh we all belong to God, and because of that, we belong to each other. Uh, now, when he says church, though, here, he's always talking about local churches. He talks about the church at Corinth. Uh, he greets a church that met in the house of a couple named Prissa and, Prissa and Aquila in Romans 16. So, it's important, therefore, that we belong to a specific representation of this church. Not just to say, in general, uh, I belong to the church worldwide. You can think of a child, for instance. If you saw a child in the mall and you said, well, honey, where's your family? Where's your mother and daddy? And you know something's wrong as the child looked up at you and said, I belong to all the people of the world. You know, you think, of course, the child needs, you know, psychological help probably. But the fact is, if you belong to all the people in the world, you belong to nobody, you know. And so for people to say, well, I'm a Christian. I just belong to the church worldwide. Well, what part of the church do you belong to? Where are you connected with those, uh, the, the people of God? So uh, a child unconnected to a specific family we call an orphan. And it's that way spiritually for us. We need to belong to the people, have mutual responsibility and accountability and interdependence and the fellowship that makes us strong and encourages us and stirs us up, these things. So it's, it's critical that we belong. Um, so uh, we have, and because we're family, obviously, we have a special responsibility to each other, just like any family does. Uh, if, if something happens to my brother way over in Atlanta, I have a very strong responsibility for him because he is my brother. And it's, we look the same way with our, our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6 there, for you do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of your household, your family. So we think of the church, we think of a building, a family, and then we think body. Ephesians 5, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. And then Romans 12, though many were one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So that really uh, ups the ante in terms of intimacy and belonging. Um, we each share the life of Christ, and so we're all members of the same body, members of one another, united to one another. Uh, you talk about a child not having... Uh, a family. What about a body part not having a body? You know, that's getting really gruesome. You know, imagine your uh, a child comes in, you're eating dinner that night, and says, "Well, what y'all do today? We were playing out in the field. Oh, the one at the end of the street. Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, we saw a finger. Wait, you what? 
we saw things, you know, they're all casual about you think, call the police, <laughs> something happened, you know. So that's just terrible, of course. Um, so God couldn't show us in a more graphic way that we belong to each other. We're members of a body, certainly not made to be on our own. The only reason this finger exists is to be connected. The only reason this fingernail exists is to be connected to the body. And um, because we are part of the body, the same way as family, you care for one another, Paul uses that argument for the body on page 75 in the box, Ephesians 4. Speak truth with his neighbor, and here he's thinking about his Christian neighbor, because we are members of one another. How can you speak, not speak honestly to your, those who are members? Or 1 Corinthians 12, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Uh, you're the body of Christ. Uh, now, when I was a youth director right out of college in Gaston, Alabama, we were we cooked hamburgers on one Sunday night, and we had those stacks of frozen patties. And some kid had a knife out and was trying to pry them loose. And I wisely saw that he could hurt himself, so I took the frozen patties and I started working with them. And sure enough. I had my hand here and was prying like this. I got so frustrated. And sure enough, they came loose and the knife went almost all the way through my hand. Now, it was amazing how the rest of my body devoted itself to the welfare of my hand at that point. This hand reached over. My eyes were fixed upon it. My feet started taking me over to a table to lie down. My stomach was involved. Um, Everything, there was one, you know, the whole body suffered because of this one place that was suffering. Uh, Nothing was mocking that. Nothing was making fun. Everything was devoted to the pain that was in my hand. Um, So... So it is with the body. We are members. We must care for each other. And obviously, if you're members, you can't just not be there. You know, you can't just not attend and be a part of this of the body of, of Christ. It's just understood. If this is a building you're a part of, it's uh, a family you're a part of. It's a body you're a part of. That we all will be involved. That's who we are. That's what He's made us to be. And then I love what it says about Christ's care of the church. Uh, we saw that on page 74. It says Christ cherishes and nurses and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. I love that. It shows we're so constituted a member. He, in a sense, it's like he has to love us because we're his body. How can he not love us because we're his body? Um, so... That hamburger illustration could kind of help us understand Christ's love for us um, and our our love for one another, of course. Then in Ephesians 4 here, um, this whole passage shows how God deals with us as one interlocking, interworking body. And I asked the question, what are God's goals? And you can look at that, but um, you'll see in verse 13... We attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of, God, Son of God to mature manhood, literally to a mature man, to one single person. 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're all moving together as his people. And then verse 16 indicates how every part is involved. The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. You see, we are each holding on to one another. Every single one of us is holding on to the other. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So a wonderful, wonderful passage that talks about this interlocking of the body. And then finally, when you think of the church, think bride. Uh, these are the metaphors of building, a family, a body, and a bride. And here, of course, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's the model for husbands. The husband's love for his wife is to copy Christ's love for the church. So it's a, a husband-like love as he takes the church and actually dies for the church and makes her his bride forever. <clears throat> um, and, of course, body and bride go together because he uses the analogy of body for a husband. Love your wife a- as you do your own body uh, because she is a part of you now uh, due to your union. And so the same things coalesce with Christ. He loves us. We are his bride. He loves us because we are are his body. So uh, as I say on 76 there, uh, he's taken us to be his bride. He has actually died for his bride, shed his blood, dying in her place, bearing her punishment to deliver her from judgment. He truly rescues his bride. Um, And of course... As I say here, the whole uh, story of history uh, is really this love story of how God comes after his people, redeems them, brings them to himself, fellowships with them forever. Um, In Christ's words to the disciples in John 14, he uses the analogy of the day. uh, What would happen is you would marry someone and you're legally married, but then uh, he would go off to prepare the house, you know, to get it ready. And then she didn't know when he was coming, just a particular night, he would come with all of his friends. That's why Jesus used that analogy to say, you don't know when I'll be coming, but be ready for me when I come. But here he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And it's a marriage analogy that that I'm preparing this place. And of course, He prepared the place through his own death and resurrection. It's amazing. Talk about preparing a place. Talk about a sacrifice. You imagine a husband slaving for a house, building it it with his own hands for three solid months, night and day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, let's just imagine. You think, gosh, what a labor of love. He had her on his heart. That's what happened with Christ. He had her on his heart. He was going to redeem her, and he died for her, was raised for her ascended into heaven for her. Uh, So he has prepared a place for her in a a glorious way. And of course, heaven is pictured as the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so really, to try to convey eternity, he paints the picture as an everlasting wedding celebration, or you might say kind of honeymoon forever, right? So to know that you're the bride is, is uh, also a, a critical thing uh, to have that kind of self-concept as a church. <clears throat> um, as I say at the bottom of 76, um, 
If we know and trust that we're his beloved bride, then we can live in an atmosphere of celebration and expectancy. Filled with the knowledge and experience of his love, we can have the capacity to love one another. We love because he first loved us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So he becomes our example and our resource for loving one another and being built up in love. Okay? Now, with those four things, especially the latter one talking about love, this kind of this brings us to our uh, mission statement in, uh, for, uh, as a church, our vision statement. On page 80, I give the whole vision statement, nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people by proclaiming, believing, and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I start with just the first half of that. Now, loving God and loving people is really a summary of everything in the Bible in terms of what we're to do. Because Jesus summarized it, didn't he, in in Matthew 22 when he says, the whole law is summed up in this, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the whole commandment hangs. It's like, here are these two pegs, and you've seen these... uh, Old pictures, uh, they, they used to paint game pictures a lot, where well, they still do, but, and, and you might have a peg and it has all these birds hanging on it, you know, and then this peg would have some rabbits and other things hanging on it. And uh, what Jesus is saying is that every command in the Bible hangs on one of those pegs. Love God and love people. Whatever it is, it fits into those two, uh, two categories. So, Basically, loving God and loving people, we're just saying this summarizes the mission statement of God for his people. That's what we're called to do. But one maybe unique thing about what we try to say, not unique to the Bible, but maybe something you hadn't thought about as much, is this first phrase, nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people. We all know how uh, dreadful quote, dreadful love can be taxing, draining. In fact, sometimes it seems like loving is the, the hardest thing to do. And we, we want to nurture a happiness in love uh, for several reasons. Um, notice what I say here in that first paragraph. Um, I'm hoping that it will encourage you to think, you mean I might be nurtured into a life of joyful love, even in the midst of difficulty. Now that, that's a happy prospect to think I could, be, I could be overflowing with a joy that issues in love for people. That, that, would be, that would be wonderful to have that kind of happiness in Jesus that issues in love. Well, the next paragraph, I just talk about how much the word joy is found in words, words like praise and bless and thank you and thanking him and all of that. Um, and notice how they're related, joy and love. In the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, some people think that love is really, it, that, that all everything else is just a subset of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which is made up of joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, uh, self-control. But notice it's kind of like the right-hand man. The first thing about love is what? It's full of joy. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's love that is joyful. That's what the Spirit does. 
Or notice Philippians 4. My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy. I love you, you're my joy. Or look at the Macedonians. They sacrificed greatly. They themselves were poverty stricken, but they gave uh, generously to the uh, poor church in Jerusalem. But it says in that second verse, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in the wealth of generosity. And so John Piper has a great summary statement. Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. I can't improve on that. And I think it, I think it truly captures the nature of, of love in, in Scripture. It's the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Now, if you're gladly doing something, you think of a hobby, you think of a vacation, you think of a movie, you think of ice cream, you know, you think of things that you are glad to do and you enjoy. Think of enjoying love. What a liberating thing. What an awesome thing that we would find a joy even. And of course, that's 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 the work of it, really, is to try to maintain that joy, to try to live out that joy. Um, even our love for Christ, notice in the next uh, little paragraph there, you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So our love for him means that, of course, we have a great joy in him. Uh, skip a paragraph, if you would. Remember that, I, I don't have the verse, it's Nehemiah 8.10, but... It's a famous verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you could ask, strength for what? Well, strength to obey Him in everything. Well, that would boil down to two things, love God and love people. So you could say, the joy of the Lord is your strength for love. So as I say here, joy is not an optional addition to love. It's really the heart, the strength, the sincerity of love is joy. That's how important it is. And at the bottom I say, joyful love protects against self-pity and a martyr's complex in one service of others. So easy to turn that corner and feel like, well, I did so-and-so, and they, they didn't even show appreciation. Well, if you have joy in the love, it really doesn't matter, does it? The, the love itself is your joy, and you spend yourself. Do you think God spends himself gladly for us in the face of our neglect? Yes, he does, thankfully. It protects us against the disciplined endurance in doing good that in the end promotes ourselves. Remember the Pharisees tithe faithfully and causes us to look down on people who don't serve like we do. It protects against a draining drudgery even in love's sometimes protracted difficulty. Um, so I, I just commend this to you to uh, read the rest of this section about love. Um, You'll see on uh, the next page, page 79, there's a quote by Jeremy Taylor that I first saw in John Piper. He's a Puritan writer. That's the third little paragraph there. Um, it's one of the most striking things I've ever read. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Um, I used to think, I, I would say this because I thought it was a, a spiritual thing, uh, that, that God is not concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness. And, and I understand in terms of, if you mean happiness like comfort, okay, 
things always going right. Things, you know, and in that sense, I'd say absolutely. But if you're thinking about real happiness or joy, to say God's not concerned about your joy, He's concerned about your holiness, He has to be concerned about both because joy is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It is part of our obedience to God to have a joy in Him that overflows in love to others. And that's what we're about as a church, seeking to nurture that joy so that we will uh, have gladly serve the needs of others. And it's interesting on the top of 80, uh, as Jesus is talking about love, uh, love one another as I have loved you, he says, verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And as I say here, here in the same breath, Jesus speaks of his great love and his joy. His love and joy are bound up together. And he speaks about love because he wants his joy to be in them. Love like I love. I say this so that you'll know my joy. Your joy may be full. So there's no way to pull those things apart. Uh, the overflow of joy. And... We don't have time for it, but um, the bottom, I uh, continue to talk about how this joy is nurtured. And we believe it's nurtured as we proclaim the gospel of Christ, as we believe that gospel, as we live out that gospel. First uh, John 4 is a great passage to set this forth. Uh, it first talks about in verses 9 and 10, the great love of God manifested through Christ, and later in verse 16, in response to that revelation of his love, John says, so Christ showing himself, dying on the cross, raising, rising from the dead, through this, he says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And he goes on to talk about how this love is perfected in us so that we don't fear judgment. We don't fear punishment because we do believe God's love for us. And that's the context in which he finally says, we love because he first loved us. Our love is rooted in the revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ. So that's the statement of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. So uh, hopefully you'll... Uh, you can look at the passages, like for, for instance, on page 82, it will show again and again the, the kind of the fundamental structure of love, how uh, his love for us issues and our love for others. Um, he even says at the end, Christ's love controls us. Uh, so we see how critical that, that gospel root of love is. And then uh, on page 83 and following, I just give you... Uh, a structure for how this works out in our church, that this living out the gospel in love fuels our worship, our fellowship, our teaching, and our outreach. And uh, so that's what you have for the rest of that. Um, on page 88, I would urge you to look uh, through this, and I, I meant to get to this, and I just spent too long on other things in these past weeks, but I would urge you, if you don't look at anything else, and you can look at the rest of it at your leisure, but I would like for you to read uh, pages 88 to 93 pretty carefully because 
it outlines for you what we mean by do you promise to support the church in its work in worship, okay? Attendance, worship, prayer, encouragement, and giving. You'll notice giving is just a small place <laughs> at the end, but it's included there. Um, that expectation that you will uh, give, but an expectation you'll give way more than that uh, in terms of your overall involvement in the church. And then the last uh, question, number five, of submitting to the government and discipline of your church, this just basically talks about how uh, we shepherd the flock and what happens in discipline situations and the like. Um, we... Uh, we think our, our primary discipline in shepherding is in our teaching of the, of the Word. And we, but, but we do want you to understand that we care, we care enough about every member so that somebody doesn't attend or somebody falls into a serious situation. We don't just sweep it under the rug. We don't play like they don't exist anymore. We don't say, well, gosh, I don't want to involve myself in something so difficult. We really try to get involved in people's lives and help them. And our, our effort always is to help restore them to Christ, help restore them to his body if they've broken away from his body. Uh, it's always an act of love. It's very difficult, but an act of love trying to restore people to uh, Christ, to his word, to his, to his people. Um, so... The point is that when you say, I promise to support the church, I promise to be a part of this body, we take that seriously, you know, and you should take it seriously. This is very different than some churches where you just might, on a given Sunday, they say, anybody want to join? You raise your hand, you walk down front, says, look, they're joined, this is good. No commitments, no, uh, no covenant, so to speak, with each other. No really pledge on our part that we will care for you and nurture you. Uh, and we try to make that clear up front so that you know we really mean business. Uh, and, and I can commend to you our elders. These are men that really love Christ. They love and know his word. Um, as I've said before, you can go and ask these guys questions about the Bible. And they're, they're not going to say, I don't know, just ask the pastor. You know? They will really explain it to you. They will really talk to you. Um, and that's why they're elders in the church because of their knowledge of the word and their desire for Christ and their character. So I, I've never I've never been a part of a, a, a better session than this, and I'm I'm very thankful for that. So great great men. Well, I about run you into this worship service, so we better go. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your. Uh, love for us in Christ. We praise your name that you have um, given yourself away so freely. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to lay hold of us and mold us into his image. And we thank you that you've pledged to do that in Jesus name. Amen.